Well, I was only pretending not to know what musical that we have. Um, I actually have been hearing Little Mermaid a lot, um, both with the practices. I don't drop into too many practices, but just, you know, children singing. Um, the restroom is right by my office, and some of the children are so dedicated, they're singing their songs while they're in the bathroom. So that's it's great, it's awesome. Um, some of you don't know that we've been kind of taking a break from our series uh, where we've been talking about what a healthy church is and what does it mean to be a disciple. And we've done kind of a Little Mermaid-themed series. We're actually looking at the real Little Mermaid story, not the one that, that was Disney-fied, but the real Little Mermaid story and um, seeing how there's some Christian themes in there and then there's some very, very different ones. So what do, we, what do we know? Well, we know that this mermaid, this little mermaid, was, was, was brought up in this world, this really awesome world, the way it's described. You know, she has family, she has friends, she has a job to do, um, you know, every reason to be happy. But she's not. And she's not just a little unhappy. She's really unhappy. She's so unhappy that she's willing to give up everything. And what does she want? Well, she wants two things. In the Disney version, she only wants one thing. She wants the prince. But in Hans Christian Andersen's version, the prince is part of it. But what she wants is she wants immortality. See, little uh, mermaids didn't live. They didn't have souls. They couldn't live forever. They could only live for 300 years, which is a pretty long time. But, um, but it wasn't forever. So she wants this. And so she's willing to give up a lot. You know, she's willing to even give up her identity as a mermaid. Get rid of the tail, get some legs. In Hans Christian Andersen's version, she not only gets legs, but she's told that when you walk, it will hurt. And so all the time she's walking on the earth, out of the sea, it's painful. She's okay with that. She's willing to do it. She also has this kind of really tough time where in Hans Christian Andersen's version, this takes a while, it's not like just a few days, where she's actually there with the prince, and they become best buddies. She's going out with him, hunting, and, you know, hanging out with him in the palace. And there's a true friendship and affection growing there, but she, um, she's given up her voice. She's part of the price. Given up her voice. Now, I hate to ruin stories by pointing out plot holes. No, I'm lying. I love to ruin stories by pointing out plot holes. I think it's fun. But I wonder, because Hans Christian Andersen doesn't address this, but if she couldn't speak, why didn't she just write him a note? I know it ruins the story, you know, no dramatic tension. Maybe in all those years she was under the sea, like she never learned to write, she was illiterate. Um, which, by the way, is another good message. Kids, stay in school, do your best. Uh, learn to read, learn to write, right? Because she could have communicated in other ways, but she didn't. She tried, you know, but 
just didn't happen. And she wasn't even guaranteed anything. It was only for a chance, a chance at love, a chance at immortality. In effect, she really wasn't after either one of those things. She was after this thing that really gets us in our world. She wanted happiness. She wasn't happy. She wanted to be happy. And so she, this is one of the quotes from Hans Christian Andersen's story that she says. She says, I would give gladly all the hundreds of years that I have to live to be a human being only for one day and have the hope of knowing the happiness of that glorious world above the stars. She's chasing happiness. That's what, that's sadly what's really destroying our culture. It's destroying not just our young people. It's, it's been in our culture for generations. Even grandparents and great-grandparents have been kind of, kind of sucked into this thing that happiness is the goal of life. It's all about being happy, happy, happy. And of course, when it was first said about happiness, society was much more structured. People were more willing to believe in God, believe in the Bible, believe in morality. But you know what? Your kids are smart. And you know what your kids are asking? Your kids are saying, if Christianity doesn't make me happy, if church doesn't make me happy, if following these rules or reading the Bible doesn't make me happy, why should I do it? Why should I follow it? Because you told me, Mom, you told me, Dad, you told me, Grandpa, you told me, Grandma, you told me, I just want you to be happy. And so we have this world that's very similar to this spirit that the Little Mermaid wanted. But see, happiness is a terrible Lord. Happiness is, is like a drug. You get addicted to it. And then you just want more and more and more. And what happens is what, what makes you happy for a little while stops making you happy. So you either need more of it or you need something different. And I say something, and sometimes it's not something, it's someone. Sometimes you just think you fell in love with somebody. This, this person is so awesome because they make you happy. They're not going to make you happy every day. And there's going to come a time when you're going to meet someone else who then makes you happy. So you lose. You leave the, you leave the first person. This isn't a new thing. This isn't just for young people. It's been going on in our culture for a while. Young people have just said, all right, I'll buy it. Let's do it. Well, when we see the Little Mermaid's quote, we go, but that kind of sounds Christian. That kind of sounds Christian. See, that's the problem. People are willing to accept something that kind of sounds Christian. But it's really not Christian. But she's like, well, she wants to live forever. Don't Christians want to live forever? Uh, yeah. She says, I want to have hope. Isn't Christianity about hope? Yeah. 
But there's a problem. There's two reasons the story of the Little Mermaid is not the story of Christianity. The first one is this. What Christianity says is not that God gives you a chance. No. God makes you a promise. He doesn't say you have a chance at life eternal. He makes you a promise. It is not a risk you take. He's not saying give up this other way of living for a chance at something else. He goes, no. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. The second thing is, when we read the story of the Little Mermaid, it's her trying to do everything. Her trusting in her own abilities. Even when the sea witch is telling her, like, you know, what you're asking is really stupid. You shouldn't do this. I mean, the villain is telling her, stop. This is dumb. Think about it. Does it anyways. And why? What is she believing? She's believing, even without my voice, I'm so darn cute. Or I can communicate love with my eyes. I think I'm going to try that with my wife. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. I'm just going to communicate with my eyes, right? But she thought she could do it. She thought, if I just am there long enough, I can, I could do it. And one of the messages of Christianity is that you cannot do it. You cannot do it. It is impossible to be righteous. It is impossible to please God. It is impossible to earn his love. And at first you go, well, that's kind of a sad thing to believe. It would be sad, except as we sang about today, as we sang about before the sermon, God makes it possible. He makes it possible not because you try your best and you try hard and then one day you're going to look up at God and God's going to look at you and say, you're so adorable, I'm going to keep you. No. It's possible because God says, in my grace, from my love, I will make a way for you to come back to me. I will make a way. See, one of the ways that the Little Mermaid story is similar to Christianity is that when she left, there was no way back. She was leaving everything. She was sacrificing everything. There was no way back. And the same thing for us. Humanity rejected God. There's no way back unless God makes a way. You see, when God asks us to give up, to give up things, it's a promise. It's not a risk. It's not about our efforts. It's his grace. It's not just for the future. Eternal life doesn't begin after you die. It's for right now. And I want you to understand this. It's not about happiness. 
One of the sad things is, is, that, is that people have married Christianity with happiness. And sadly, it was Christians who did it. You know, I just did a wedding uh, on Friday. And one of the things I try to tell couples is, if you make your marriage about happiness, it will fail. It will fail. It's not a joke, although it sometimes is told as a joke. You know, if you say, you know, let's celebrate 20 years of, of, of a happy marriage, and your spouse says, well, we've been married for 30. Well, it's kind of a joke, but it's actually kind of true. If marriage is just about happiness, it's why younger generations don't want to get married anymore, because they, they think the object of life is to be happy, and then they see their parents who aren't happy all the time. So they think, why do I want that? It's not about happiness. Christianity says it's not about happiness. It's about fulfillment. What is fulfillment? Fulfillment has elements of happiness. When you're a Christian, there, there is happiness. But you're not driven by happiness. You're driven because you want to be what God created you to be. When I shared a devotion with the, with the cast, the first one, you know, I had a fork. And we know that, you know, Ariel in The Little Mermaid, she doesn't know what a fork is for. So she thinks it's a comb. But she has this fork. She doesn't even know what it's called. But we, we talked about how if that fork was actually animated, a human being even, had a personality, and that that fork would only be fulfilled by, by doing its purpose, it might tell Ariel, yeah, I can be a comb, but that's not what I was made for. Christianity is us getting back to what we were made for and doing it, living it. It's not chasing happiness. Because if you chase happiness, it will ultimately lead to your destruction. Well, we're going to just look at one passage of Scripture and from the letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the church at Rome. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul has actually been writing a lot in this letter. It's his longest letter. And he starts talking to his own people, the people that are ethnically related to him, the Jewish people. But in the middle of that, he, he puts this incredible section of Scripture. And I'm just going to pull an excerpt from it where he says, but what does it say? And he's talking about, you know, what does Scripture say? He says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we look at this, and we see that, that God has made a way back. And we sang about that way. The way is through the sending of the Son, Jesus Christ, and then his life and his death and his resurrection. And that what his death accomplished, that his death accomplished paying the penalty for our sins. Well, we see all that. But that doesn't tell us what we need to do. And so, what do we need to do with this way? What do we need to do? Well, the first thing that we see here is we don't need to do much. You see in that first verse, it says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What Paul's saying is, it's not that complicated. It's close. It's right there. You can find the way back to God through Jesus Christ. It is right there. It's not hard. It's not hidden. But we've complicated it. We've made it so complicated. You know, we think about all these other things. And then the world obliges by complicating it even more. And I think what Paul is saying, he's saying, guys, for a little while, just think about this. Just think about this. You know that you cannot earn your righteousness. You know that if you want to come back to a right relationship with God, to know what your purpose is in this world, and to live out that purpose, you cannot do it on your own. You know that. It's not complicated. Here's what you need to do it's not far. It's not hard to understand. It's not hiding. It's not some secret message. It is this. Believe. Believe. Believe in what? Well, it's really not about believing in what. The way is not a what. The Bible tells us the way is not a what. The way is a who. Not a who from Whoville, like we did uh, Suzuko Jr. last year. No, not a who from Whoville, but the who is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What does it mean? The way is not a what, not a, it's a who. It means that we're not looking for um, a map to know the way. We're not looking for, you know, the, the secret tunnels to find a way. No. What it means is that we look to Jesus. If we want to find the way, we look to Jesus. And when we find Jesus, we follow him. That's it. It's not that complicated. Jesus is the way. 
You can have all these questions that come up in your mind. Oh, but, but my science teacher tells me this, and my, you know, my social studies teacher tells me this, and my friend says this, and I read this on the internet, and all these other things that kind of confuse everything. But it comes down to this. Do you believe Jesus is the way? And do you believe that enough to follow him? What will happen? I don't know. What happened to all these questions? I don't know. You may not ever get the answer to the questions. Those hard questions like, you know, did Adam have a belly button? You know, the tough questions. Do, you may not get the, the answers to those questions in this lifetime. But the main question is, do you believe in Jesus? And will you follow him? You see, some people will say, yeah, 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 I'm going to follow Jesus, but I just want to follow the general idea of Jesus. Uh, kids, try this with your parents. When your parents tell you to clean your room, say, you know, Mom, Dad, I agree in principle with cleanliness, and I'm going to try to determine the best way to do what you said. Eh, it's not going to work. Well, maybe you have an enlightened mom and dad that says, okay, son, go ahead. But it's probably not going to work. They're going to go, no, I want you to clean your room. I'm giving you clear directions. I don't want you to tell me you generally agree with the general principles of cleanliness. And that's how a lot of people are with Christianity. A lot of people who've been in church for 30, 40, 50 years, this is their version of Christianity. I generally agree with you, Jesus. I generally agree that love is a good idea. I generally agree about this salvation thing. I generally agree that sin is bad. But let me work out the details. Especially the details that I don't like, especially the details that society is going in a different direction, and I kind of want to go with society. We just want his ideas. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm not here to just give you ideas. If you want me in your life, I'm not just going to give you a general idea, give you general directions, and say, hey, go. I'm going to get in the car with you. going to be right there as you go through life. What does that mean for us? It means for us that if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't just have this general vague idea of Jesus, who Jesus is. We need to know who Jesus is by looking at what the Bible tells us about who Jesus is. See, this is where the problems occur because a lot of people like the general stuff Jesus offers. Eternal life, you know, love and peace and joy and all that stuff. But I don't really want to know any more details. Because then, I'm going to be confronted with things that I think, attitudes that I have, things that I'm doing that I might need to stop. Well, we look at this key verse that Jesus I mean, that Paul writes here. He says, 
after he says it's not far, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is how, if you want the way of salvation, if you want to follow Jesus, he's telling us this is how it begins. And it begins with a confession. Confession in, in um, Greek is really closer to the word agreement. It's this word that says, I agree with you, God. I agree with what you think of me. I agree with what you think is the problem. I agree. It's confession. But he says, if we confess, he says we confess that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. One of the first things it means is that when we confess Jesus is Lord, what it means is that we realize we need a Lord. You see, this goes against what society is telling us, especially our wonderful American society, which is saying, like, what's the best thing you can be is independent. Take care of yourself. Live on your own. You know, get a job. That's the push. That's the drive, is to be on our own, independent. I don't need anybody. I certainly don't need a Lord. Truth is, there's something about us, about how we were made as human beings, that we will seek after a Lord. That we will receive a Lord. And sometimes these lords aren't good. Sometimes it's another person. Another person that tells us what to do, tells us what to think. Sometimes it's somebody we don't even know personally. It's someone we're reading on the internet or we're, we're watching TV and, and they're influencing us about who we are and what, what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes it's a value that's been given to us, like I talked about, like happiness. But something... There's something that you are serving in your life. And that something will always lead to destruction. Not immediate destruction. It's going to be down the line. The way of salvation begins by saying, Jesus, you are Lord. When we say, Jesus, you are Lord, he doesn't suddenly become Lord. Jesus is already Lord. But he becomes Lord of our life. So part of the confession is that we need a Lord. Part of the confession is that we need to be saved. That if we keep doing things the way we're doing, we're not going to, we're not going to reach fulfillment. We're going to continue to go in our own way. And that's why he talks about believe. Believe in your heart. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, there's two things that are going on here. First of all, Jesus had to get dead first. And then he had to be raised. And so when it talks about him being dead, it talks about him being on the cross. Part of our, our realization is to realize we need a Lord. We need to be saved. Jesus is the Savior we need. And he accomplished what we needed on the cross. He's the Lord that we need because He's the best kind of Lord. He's not the Lord that 
just tells you to do things. He's the Lord that comes and lives with you and dwells with you. And a lot of you guys know that I coach at um, Kalani High School. I coach cross country and track. And I never want to be the coach that just stands around and says, run, do that, do this, right? I always want to be the coach that can still go out there and, 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 and run. Anything that I'm asking my athletes to do, I'm going to do it. I might not do it as well as them because they're younger and all that, but I'm going to do it. And I think that helps. I think it helps when, I, when I'm coaching because they realize that I'm not just talking from a book or I'm not just talking from when I was back in high school 30, 40 years ago. But they know that I'm still doing this right now. That's the kind of Lord we have. The one who wants to walk with us. Be right there. And we know from the Bible that he lived in this world just as we did. He knows. But he's even more so. See, as a coach, I'm limited. I can't, I can't make my runners better. I can't suddenly make, you know, I told one guy, he's, he's incredible, great form, strong, tough as nails, but he's like five feet tall. So I told him, your job over the summer is to get to be 5'6". Work on it, right? He said, I'll try, coach, but I don't know. See, I can't make him 5'6". I can't make him bigger. I can't make him taller. But see, that's the great thing about Jesus being Lord. Jesus says, it's not about you. It's about what I'm going to do with you. Because I can. I can make up for those things that you are not. That selfishness, that pride, that inability to love people, especially people that are enemies, I can help with that. I can give you that. So we follow. But we follow because he helps us. And we do that because we believe. And finally, what this tells us, where he talks about there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He's saying two things there. One thing he's, he's saying is that, okay, there's no more of this dividing line. Back 2,000 years ago, the people who weren't Jewish always felt like they were second-class citizens when they were, you know, believing in the same God with the Jewish people. He says, no, it's not the case anymore. He says, you're now one. The wall has been torn down. But he's also saying this. You have the same Lord. You're following the same Lord. And what this is going to mean, and we know this, is because um, people who hated Christians in the first century started to make fun of them. And they made fun of them by calling them a name. And the name they called them was Little Christ. And it was meant to make fun of them. But you know what the Christians said? The Christians went, well, that's a good name. I like that name. 
And so they began to call themselves Christians because they understood that's what Christianity is, becoming more like Christ. You see, when we follow the way, and we follow the way not on our own power, but we follow the way because of what Christ is doing in us, we become more like Jesus. Now, you might go, well, you know, a lot of this message is for people who aren't Christians, and you're trying to tell them, you know, why they should become Christians, and that's true. But let me ask this question of those of you who are Christians. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you should be able to answer this question. And the question is this, are you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday? Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? Are you more like Jesus today than you were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? 30 years you've been walking with Jesus. How much more do you look like him? That's what it means to follow him. We're becoming more like him every day. It's not what would Jesus do? It's, it's why would Jesus do what he does? Why would he say on the cross while people are killing him, why would he say, Father, forgive them? Forgive them. Why wouldn't he say what we say? Father, strike them now. Destroy them. They're not worth it. Why? Are you more like Jesus? Does your heart resemble more his heart? Is your character more like his character? Are you motivated by the things that motivated him? Is your purpose more closely aligned with his purpose? That's the question. That's the question. The more we follow Jesus, the greater our hope the greater our love, the greater our peace, the greater our trust, the greater is the security. Let me just kind of be honest with you guys. One of the things that's been happening this, this month is um, every day the children have been having a devotion from different people, and they're you know, really asking, being asked serious questions about, about what do you believe? And and some of our cast are people who are, have been in church, grew up in Christian homes. And maybe they're not giving the answer that their parents might think they should give. Or maybe they're not giving the answers, or maybe they're asking questions that their parents don't even know that they're asking. Here's my challenge for those of you. And I say this not because I was really good at this. I was pretty bad at it. But let me ask you this. Those of you who are Christians, and I don't care if your children are small or your children are adults, do your children know what you believe? Do they? I'm not even going to ask the question whether what you believe is actually biblical. That's another question totally. 
Like, how can you really know what you believe if you're not with God's people in his word? You just figured it out on your own? It's kind of scary. It's kind of dangerous. But however you arrived at what you believe, do your children actually know what you believe? Second question, do your beliefs line up with your life? Do you say like, oh yeah, yeah, pastor, uh, what you said today, got it. We should be more like Christ. We should know his word. We should do all that. And yet, your children never see you read God's word. They never see you or hear you say, I gotta go to this Bible study. They never see you treat people with the kind of love and respect that comes from a heart that's been changed by Christ. Do we? Do our kids know what we believe? Let me ask you a third question. Do you know what your kids believe? Do you? Have you ever sat down with them? And I'm going to tell you, it's hard to get them to talk to you. Because they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. You have to build that kind of trust with them where they feel that they can be honest with you to say, I don't know about this God stuff. I pray and all I get is silence. Everybody else in my class, my teachers, everybody else says, there's no such thing as miracles. I don't know. Do you know? Do you care? If you do, you've got to start building those kind of relationships. The church in America is dying. It's dying. And it's dying from within. Everybody's going to blame attacks from the outside. But it's dying from within. And it's dying from one generation not having these kind of conversations with the next generation. And allowing kids to be honest. And being honest with our kids about what we believe. It's the way of salvation. It's a way of salvation that many of us have received. But we didn't receive it just so we could be saved. We received it so that we could then be used by God to save others. We have this way. It's not far. It's not complicated. It begins by saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, you are Lord. I believe in you and I will follow you. And then it just goes from there.